When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Fresh from almost falling out my window, it's I'm going to let you finish show number 144. And we have a special guest. Happy June, everyone, because it is June. It's June 1st. Happy Pride Month. And Amy, do the introductions, please. Okay. So, like, we have an actual doctor on the show. (laughs) Not Dr. Phil. Not Dr. Bombay. (laughs) I wish you were Dr. Bombay. Yeah. Or Dr. Zismore. Or Dr. Yeah, Zismore. Really. He was, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we have the wonderful writer, Charles Hughes, who's an actual, who you have a real PhD, right? I, I do. I do. So they oh, say at, at least. Yeah. Um, I live in PHC. <laughs> well, that's even, that's just, I mean, you know. I know, I know. Um, Charles Hughes, who is someone that um, I have been a fan of for quite some time. We were Facebook friends in that way that people actually can't know each other in real time anymore. And then the gods of over-intellectualizing music brought a bunch of writers to town for... I'll never get invited now. (laughs) And I got to meet Charles. And Charles kindly decided well decided i think i threatened you did i not at dinner <laughs> there may there may have been there may have been there may, threats, but, there may but have been i was threat. happy i was happy to be threatened so well you were the only person at the table except for david who had not been on the show so <laughs> i know you wanted to be because we were with holly and rj hey Holly and rj <laughs> anyway charles hughes is here he is an educator where you educate what where are you educating i'm at i'm at I'm at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee, which is a liberal arts school in Memphis. Yeah. Okay. We can talk about what's going on in Tennessee. That's for sure. We sure can. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Especially on the liberal arts campus. I'd really like to hear what the perspective is down there. And I first saw Charles in sort of real time when you did the fantastic, fantastic talk at St. Francis that was uh, streamed in about Bushwick Bill. And I have to say, you put out a book about Bushwick Bill two years ago on University of Texas Press, Why Bushwick Bill Matters, part of a series um, but I will say this, when, when you can get me interested in something I have really no interest in, and I'll be very honest, I have no interest in Bushwick Bill, that was such a great talk. Anyway. Oh, thank you. No, it was really, really great. Um, so Charles is an educator. He's a writer. He's a, you're working on a book about pro wrestling? I am. Okay. Let's start there. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well. Yeah, so I'm writing a book about sort of, you know, I'm a historian by training, even though actually the two the two real roots of my, you know, writing and teaching and thinking are, uh, well, 
the I'll go backwards in time. Before I was a historian, I was trained in the Afro-American Studies Department at the University of Wisconsin, which was an interdisciplinary department and where music was really a key part of it, but a lot of different ways of thinking. It was an amazing intellectual space and community. Um, but even before that, uh, and I, I'm not just saying this cause you know, I'm on, I'm on this, but my first like intellectual and writing world was music criticism. So, you know, that was really one of the things that really taught me about how to be a writer and how to be a thinker and how to express my thoughts. Um, uh, but anyway, I'm a historian by training. So I'm writing a book about the sort of broadly speaking, the history of, um, African-Americans and professional wrestling in the United States. So thinking about black pro wrestlers, but also thinking about the way that black audience members and the sort of intersections between pro wrestling and racial politics and racial culture in the United States, which is a very, you know, in some ways a very like the, the most vivid example of the kind of most horrific and absurd manifestations of stereotype and racism and the intersections with, you know, the, the, the way people think about masculinity and sexuality and all that stuff. Um, but it's also a really interesting story about like how pop culture can be this place of reimagination and how wrestling has offered this space at certain times, not only for black performers, but again, for the sort of reconsideration of, of, of the role of kind of thinking about this space and the way that black folks interact with it. It's in some ways a very different thing from the stuff I've done before because it's not music based. But in other ways, it's funny to find some kind of intersections with like, you know, thinking about like race and gender and uh, bodies and labor and work, you know, and that kind of stuff. So it's an interesting, it's an interesting project. Yeah, a little bit of a left turn, but, um, but, but I'll be back to music after that one. I got a couple, couple early ideas about what might come after this. One. Oh, like what? Oh, you don't want to say, right? Well, I mean, it's not, big, I, it's not a big deal. I just, I, I've been, I've been thinking a lot about really trying to get back to some, you know, one of the cool things about the bill book was that. My first book, which was out of my dissertation, which is called Country Soul, which is about the sort of relationship between black and white music in Memphis, Nashville, Muscle Shoals in the 60s and 70s, and really trying to kind of rethink the sort of standard narrative of what that time period was about with these sort of integrated recording studios and stuff like that. Um, that one was obviously very music-based, but I didn't get to do a lot of writing about music, <laughs> like actual records. Because <laughs> as I said, <laughs> as I said, my first writing that I did for money and my first intellectual home was was record reviews and music criticism. Right. So the Bill book, I got to write about music again, which was really great. I got to kind of do some close listening and stuff like that. So my next thing, I think music based will be more in that line. I want to I want to think about sort of some I, it is pretty early. I don't want to say too much about it, but I think it, I, I'm thinking about doing something that's going to allow me to talk about a lot of different kind of music that was made in a certain time and place and sort of responding to notions of kind of revolution in the United States and whether that was possible and or desirable, but I'm still working on it. Um, but so yeah. Why Bill? What, what was it about Bush? There were so many compelling figures in the world of hip hop. Yeah. What made you focus in on him? Because, you know, the ghetto boys are a particular time, a particular period, I think a yeah. particular age group. You really, you really knew them because they made noise for, a, a, a little chunk of time. And then that was kind of it nationally. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the main reason, and I, you know, I'm, I talk about this in the book from the very beginning is that, you know, I'm, I'm disabled. Bill was disabled and he's one of the only prominently disabled figures, uh, particularly at that time, not just in hip hop, but really in pop music more generally. And not only was he quite obviously, you know, for those who don't know who Bush Bill was, 
he's a member of the Ghetto Boys, um, and he had dwarfism, and he was very noticeably short. Uh, and he also then, throughout his career, struggled both with mental health issues and addiction and talked a lot about that. Um, he lost an eye at one point and he talked about that. So it wasn't just that he was a disabled performer, but that, and, and a disabled black performer and a disabled black man, which is a particular kind of experience that I wanted to think about in relation to disability and music and culture. But also he talked a lot about it. He was talking all the time uh, about this stuff. And so it really resonated with me from a pretty early age, um, the way that he kind of reframed conversations specifically around shortness um, but just the way that he kind of challenged these perceptions. So I wanted to think about him both in terms of his importance um, for the kind of way in which he thought about disability and expressed disability, but also the way that he resha- reshaped hip hop more generally. Um, you know, it's really funny you were talking about the intersectionality between like the races in Memphis. And me- many years ago when they would still let me write about white people, which is a long, long time ago. <laughs> It would yeah. always be like one of those things where I'd be like, you know, like the Rod Stewart. I like Rod Stewart. I'd be like, hello, I like Rod Stewart. Yeah, yeah. Um, the early Rod Stewart. Hello. Oh, yeah. Who doesn't Yeah, come on, the Mercury stuff. But oh, um, I yeah. Inter- yeah, I interviewed Dan Penn when Dan Penn oh, yeah. came back out. Yeah. Um and it was really interesting because Dan Penn he have you ever met him? Have you met oh, Dan yeah. Penn? Yeah, quite several times. He, yeah. He's a trip. He's he definitely is. a trip. I mean, the man does an interview in overalls. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, yeah. Not ironically. Exactly. But he said, yeah, he said that for him, and it was one of those things that, like, you have to wonder, is it is it just sort of old boy Southern stuff? I don't think he's racist. I, is he? But he said to him, it's not R&B unless there's black and white people in the studio. Yeah. that's He said, I've heard him say similar things. I, I mean, I yeah. I think, like, the thing is, for 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 that sound, right. For like muscle shoals kind of sound and, and the Memphis interaction with it, you know, there is something to the idea that there's this real country element to Mm -hmm. it in the way. Um, and I think that Penn is such an amazing songwriter and singer, uh, and record producer. Um, and as this white guy who, I mean, he, you know, he literally, as you probably know, right. I mean, he would literally be sent out into the studio by Jerry Wexler to sing something so that the black singer who was doing the session would be like, Oh oh, man, the white, the white guy's doing better than me. I got to get out there. No, he yeah. said he would do the guide vocals. Yeah. I mean, it was like Mark Anthony with the freestyle groups. They'd go, all right, this is what we Absolutely. want it to sound like. And they Absolutely. were all like tweaked out of their brains, like speeding yep. their brains yep. out, yep. cranking out these songs. I mean, yep. he told me a story about him and Spooter Oldham going to the bar in between sessions. And, and they were just like, all right, you know, you got, you got, half an hour to come up with three songs yeah. and Spooner put his head on the bar going, Oh, I could just cry like a baby. <laughs> yes. That's it. Yep. Boom. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. I, I, it's, yeah. I mean the, the level of skill uh, that those, that those folks, like, I mean, Penn and Oldham are, are sort of exceptional in that way just because they're so amazing. But yeah, just like the level of like, you know, craft and like the, the, the way that that was, you know, they could crank this stuff out because they had to, but also because they were they, they were indeed often accelerating through various means. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I always feel like the you know that intersection between country and soul music, which speaks to just the shared heritage of both of them anyway. Like there is something kind of magic about that for me, where you get people like Arthur Alexander, who of course Dan Penn, like mm. Arthur Arthur was his big hero. 
um, and really kicked off the Muscle Shoals thing because they were like, hey, we, <laughs> we've been waiting for a black singer and here he is and he has these songs right. too. And so like whether it's him or um, Candy Staten, but also people like Eddie Hinton and, and like the white artists who were able to Joe South, like there's just, there is something that I've always loved about that stuff. And it's, it is interesting to think about the racial mix because everybody was really aware of that. Um, and it was, it could be the source of real problems, but it was also the source of real magic for, for sure. So how much do you think the background of the civil rights movement was playing? I mean, this is in, we're in the heart of the civil rights movement. And is that, is that even, I mean, obviously black and white people record together today. Hello, but Uh is it's different now, right? It's totally different now. Yeah. I mean, I think it plays a big role, you know, and I mean, like it's, you know, in Memphis, it was going on literally right down the street, right? In and in right. uh, in Nashville, in a sense too, right? Um, but even when it was a little bit further away, directly, I mean, the civil rights movement affected every part of the United States all the time during that period. So I think it was big, and I think that the musicians both recognized what they were doing as being exceptional, you know, because like it is absolutely true, right? That like in Memphis or Muscle Shoals or Nashville, you know, there were these spaces in the middle of very violent resistance to any kind of racial integration where these folks were working together as colleagues, you know, um, and hanging out together between sessions, doing that kind of stuff. Um, and I think that they also understood that like their music was speaking into this moment, right. Much in the way that the late fifties folks understood that, right. That like, Mm -hmm. you know, the rock and rollers, even someone like Elvis, right. Understood that there was something about what they were doing that was affecting this conversation. Um, but I also think that the civil rights era is important here too, because, you know, Everybody was figuring out that, I mean, it was such a, it's such a transformative moment in American history in terms of this rethinking of the legal relationship and the social relationship, particularly in the the Jim Crow South, but elsewhere as well, that like, you know, it's creating an atmosphere in which everybody's thinking about it. Like one of the things that I talk about in the book is that like, I understand why people, especially the white people who are involved in this story will say things like, oh, we never thought about race. We never saw color. We never, right. I get it. And I understand that that's most of the time, not always, but it's most of the time coming out of a well-intentioned place. But I actually think that's backwards. (laughs) Like, I think that it was not that nobody saw race. They were thinking about race all the time. And yet they were, because they needed to think about it for the music they were making, but they were able to kind of figure out for the most part, ways to work within that. Um, and also there are plenty of times where they very much uh, were thinking about race and where black musicians did not have the opportunities that their white counterparts did and all that kind of stuff. But I, I think it's really, I mean, you can't, I can't imagine that moment happening the way it does without the civil rights movement as this very direct, but also just kind of overarching right. context for it. And that, and cause they were responding to the movement too, right? Like the music, the music is responding um, sometimes very indirectly, or at least, you know, under the radar in a kind of masked way because they want to get on the radio. But then later on, straight up, like, talking about it. Yeah, I mean, and it's also, like, I've always felt like um, I don't see color is a luxury only white people can say. 100%. 100%. And it's, and it's also, like, it's such a... No comment. It, <laughs> it's, such a, it's such a, like, it's such a... Um, uh, it's such a misreading, purposeful, I think, in a lot of cases purposeful misreading by white people as to what the goal of the civil rights movement was in the first place or what the goal of racial equality is in the United States, right? It's not to transcend this and act like there is no race. 
It's to realize that there is this real issue that we have to actively push back against to create a multiracial democracy, right? Like this whole, you know, like the whole way in which, you know, Martin Luther King has been reduced to half a sentence from the I have a dream speech that is taken out of context about I have a dream of the, you know, one day we will, the content of your character, not the color of your skin, right? The way that that's been very purposefully pulled out. And that is very evident in the way people talk about music from this period. Like, there's a real tendency that I constantly and sometimes very annoyingly point out (laughs) to people where it's like, (laughs) it's like the, you know, to claim that music is this space where race doesn't exist is that's bullshit. There is no space where race doesn't exist. Exactly. And what makes the, (laughs) what makes this moment so remarkable is that even in the context of being in these Southern cities in the sixties and even allowing for the fact that there, and we have to acknowledge the ways in which a lot of the black folks involved did point out racial inequity and did point out the way that they were sometimes mistreated by their white colleagues. But even accounting for all of that, they still were able to do this. That's a almost miraculous thing. And it speaks to what we actually, I think, should try to push for rather than trying to deny that this happens because then it's just going to fuck us up even worse than we've fucked up before. And we're already plenty fucked up. So, you know, and with that, we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. Pantheon Podcast listeners, Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner. And Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And we're back. Mayor Adams is clearly very mad at us because. Oh God! Been... What did he do now? No, I'm saying he's messing with our he's messing with our connectivity issues. Oh, Court, I know <laughs> he's coming in going the <laughs> the white girl and the black guy are talking about stuff. Can we all get along? I've always said, and then Courtney, I've always said that it would do every white person a lot of good, which is why the NBA is a really good thing. Every white person needs to know what it's like to be the only white person in the room. 
Oh yeah, and I think you know everybody. Except that's that what that tends to turn into is immediate fear, as opposed to like I don't walk into a room feeling fearful, but I've definitely walked into rooms where you feel the energy when you're black that your presence isn't welcome, and so. I usually am in more of a protective mode. Mm-hmm. And what, what I find sometimes with white people, especially when it's a room with black people, that translates into fear. And then any kind of action or reaction that can come for that, come from that, you know, being afraid is enough of a reason for some reason everybody to understand. Right. Which I always find confusing. I'm like Black people and, and, and minorities and, and, and indigenous and native people in America have been through a lot, a lot of things. We're the ones who should actually be walking around in fear right. from, you know, history. Even as you see in, in music, listen, I still, it still happens in music. I worked with, throughout my career at a lot of different points, Black artists that actually wore crossover, worked at pop and both R&B. And I saw the difference in treatment. I've seen the difference in being a product manager. I've seen a difference in budgets for here's the new R&B act, you know, and this budget is this. Here's the new pop act that's random from nowhere. We're hot on this group, this person, and their budget is way bigger. So, you know, it's not that it's really changed. There's the guise of it changing just because we all want to feel kumbaya. But I say that radio today proves that. I grew up at a time where I could hear everything on the radio back to back, a rock song, a pop song, you know, a love ballad. We would hear all of these artists. And then you would also see those things cross over. Look at a Bobby Gentry, right? The old Billy Joe was a pop hit, a country hit, an R&B hit, like a number one record across the board, an an adult contemporary hit. Where do you ever see that kind of crossover anymore with, with, with an artist that just goes across those lines? You know, the Pointer Sisters... Their, their first Grammy is for a country song. That's right. You know? So I think we're more segregated now with just how everything can go on these lists. So, I, you know, I don't feel like it's that different. I, and I you think, know? and I 100%, and I think, like, the way in which musical genre continues to be policed, right, and the boundaries mm-hmm. around it, which really comes out, you know, recently, obviously with Lil Nas X with Old Town Road, where, Mm -hmm. you know, oh, supposedly, right? Like, I mean, here we are in this moment and he is so brilliant. I mean, back then I didn't even realize how brilliant he was, but I knew he was brilliant initially because like he was, he found this way to, to confound all of the traditional genre gatekeepers by putting it on SoundCloud and by doing all this stuff. But still, <laughs> right, like the immediate reaction of the kind of mainstream recording establishment was to say, oh, that can't be country, right? That's and removed it, remember? And removed it. Was it was rising. It was naturally yep. on its own, yep. rising up to go. And it'd be like, you can't, what? it's like, what? This isn't country. You can't be here. Yeah, it's Bill like, Ford what does that mean? Charts, right. That's right. right. They took it off the chart. Mm-hmm. And then they added... Um, as Billy my Ray students Cyrus. would say, as my students would say, Miley's father, Miley's mm-hmm. dad, and Miley's mm-hmm. dad, thanking 
thanking Black Jesus that he had a career again after that. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It well, changed like, but you- yeah. Well, and even then they were, you know, that that was so funny because it was like he puts Billy Ray Cyrus on the remix, which is also kind of great because it's like. You know, back when Billy Ray was a big deal, he too was just like called this horrible, like that, oh, you're corrupting country music and you're doing all this stuff, mm-hmm. right? But like, anyway, so he puts him on the track. He has him basically rap. Like Lil Nas X's right. verse is more country than Billy Ray's in that way, which all that's bullshit because there's been rap on country radio for 15 years. Because as, as our friend David Cantwell says, right, like country radio is where old genres go to have a happy retirement. Right. And so like, like, and, uh, but anyway, like, so then he puts it on the track and then it's still not country enough, but like, that's what you're talking about, Courtney, right? Cause it's like, we can use this as a shorthand because we all still get it. And it has these really serious effects, right? Like it has mm-hmm. like black artists have historically very rarely had the opportunity to achieve not just a kind of crossover success, but a like, the way that crossover is perceived is often very different too, right? Like white artists mm-hmm. are just sort of free to do whatever we want, right? Mm-hmm. I, not that I'm a white artist, but I'm a white person. You know what I mean? Like yeah. white mm-hmm. people, and this is true of white people more generally, we can go wherever we want, right? We can do whatever we want. We're white people. It's this almost colonizer kind of impulse. And it's treated as our just like being being broad-minded. Whereas when black folks do it or when other folks of color do it, it's, it's sort threatening. of pers- yeah, it's threatening. Yes, threatening and, and intrusive and intrusive. Well, you know? and I also call it the soulful voice syndrome, right? Totally. If you have, if you are white with a soulful voice, remember why did they love Sam Smith? Who I, I enjoy Sam. Yep. That first album. Oh, they loved. They felt like he had a soulful voice, and oh. he got to be. Oh, well, hold on. This is. But this is. This is real shit. It's not about how, because I know how you feel about him. And he immediately got played on the radio. Somebody black, we have many black artists, they did not get pop play. Or Adele, who has a beautiful, soulful voice, right? But why do people love her voice? Because it's soulful. And the way she sings is with soul. And so she's going to be all over pop radio. But when you're black with those voices, it is not appreciated at all pop radio or any of those things but also i mean also i mean yeah to me sam smith is just like just because you stick a gospel choir behind you right. does not make you an r&b singer <laughs> right. i mean for, you know what i mean it's like Ooh, it's yeah. like the republicans throwing a gospel choir. no you're still right. and and just because you sing in falsetto doesn't make you an nope. r&b singer but he also had like a woman whose name we will not mention because she's a friend of ours. A lot of our black friends are like, oh, my God, he's so great. I'm like, oh, my God, you're judging him on the, like, she throws good for a girl curve. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, it's like, <laughs> you know, hold him to the same standards that you would the average black singer in any church USA. And he doesn't come up. You know, he doesn't. This is not George Michael. I'm sorry. This is not Bobby Caldwell. This is not <laughs> Hall and Oates. This is like, I don't know. Yeah, Sam Smith gives me a headache on so many different <laughs> levels. Not her favorite. Not yeah, my not favorite. Her favorite. Clearly. <laughs> yeah, not, and not like, I just, because it's so calculated. I'm sorry. I feel it's very calculated, Sam well, Smith. I, yeah, I mean, and like the, the, you know, the other thing too, right, is it's like white white folk, like the nature of white folks crossing over into black music or doing black music is also it's it it correlates so much to like the nature because the the stuff that really annoys me about the, is is the stuff that's like white folk especially th- this is like having a real like comeback in the last few years of like 
white people doing the kind of hard soul singing or trying to approximate this, this sort mm-hmm. of gruffness and like the way in which everybody's trying to sound like Wilson Pickett. But like, I blame American Idol for that. I mean, That's there's American definitely, Idol. yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely part no. of that for sure. And it's like, I just am fascinated by this because to me, what that is like, it's like, you know, there are, there are certain white artists who do that kind of thing. And I'm just like, to the point where I'm like, why, like, how is this different from just blacking up and doing a minstrel performance because you're just, because your, your evocation of musical blackness is designed to like tap into something that you as a white, right. It's like you transform yourself and you do this really, I think very vocally caricatured version of what black singing is, even in an R and B and soul context. Like it's, it's like a it's, lot of runs. It's a lot of runs. It's a lot of yep. guttural, and a, it's a yeah, lot guttural of like, stuff. Yeah. And like, it's mm-hmm. just, it's just strange because then what you have is you have this kind of embrace of this stuff by a white audience predominantly saying like, Oh, this person has really got soul. <laughs> and I'm like, what are we doing here? Not that you, I mean, look, like what you like, that's okay. But it's like, if this is so to me, that stuff is so, weirdly like annoying in a way that trends to me towards like you're basically racial caricature here and you're just and you but it's like it's like okay culturally because you're a white person trying to I don't know it's just there's stuff that really let me just say me about that for a while I don't have a problem if you come by it naturally your voice is your voice if you come by it naturally I'm here for you I just find it interesting that it gets to always be elevated above the originators oh, yeah. of it. Yeah. There yeah, are a yeah. lot of there are a lot of new R and B voices out there that have amazing albums that are singing their face off. They're giving right. you all of that, and they don't get any light shine there. You know what I mean? They're kind of. Yeah, but you know how it was. I mean, mm- you're saying like. But back in the day, you know, like, as like you were saying with the budgets, I mean, when I was reviewing stuff for like People Magazine, all right, so that's main as mainstream as you get, I would always like, I'm going to go to the black, not because I was like freaking, you know, Rosa Parks oh. or something like that, but I'm going to go to the black music department because I know oh. when they're making their little list of who they've gotten, the fact that they've gotten, you know, that review oh. and it wasn't until it sort of crossed over that anybody paid it any attention you know right. it's like really crazy i mean i mean but there are some artists who sort of transcend that i mean i think ultimately i think the brits tend to do it a little better right because they look at it from a distance they're not involved in the sort of um the oh the the americanness of the racial you know yeah. amy winehouse to me was never nobody ever questioned amy winehouse right exactly um you know, gravitas and stuff like that. You well, know? and it's, and it's, it's complicated too, right? Cause it's like, and I'm not dismissing this at all, but it's like the, you know, the, we should never forget, like, is it, is it, is it, is it good? Like, are the records good? Right. And I know that's kind right. of a, comes down to a personal thing and, a, and it is a critical, right. But like, I think, you know, one of the things also is like, you kind of just tell like for, for me, like I, there's records where I'm like, this person comes by it naturally or somebody, is doing something interesting with it versus someone who's just kind of doing an Im- imitation. Um, yeah. You know, or doing something that doesn't feel like it's actually in response to the music itself. Right. I mean, like, right. you know, to me, that is what is so important. And I mean, someone like Amy Winehouse or George Michael um, or whoever, right. Like 
there's something, and also somebody who's kept listening to what black music has been doing. Like, I think that's another thing that drives me crazy about like, um, particularly in the kind of, you know, they're country- not revisionists. They're not revisionist. Yeah. They're just not totally. They're not like calling back to like this nostalgic right. time, because that's when you really start to get into like the kind of minstrel and sort of old South nostalgia. Even if these artists are absolutely not trying to do that, it's still weirdly tapping into this idea that like there was something better and more authentic. And that gets complicated. Cause it's like, you know, I'm all for people keeping the old stuff alive, but it can't just be a retread, especially if it's going. Well, it can't this- be an Amber either. Exactly. You know what I mean, it, yeah. it can't be like, it's like, it's, it, that's one of the things that, and he's black that used to drive me nuts about Leon Bridges. Like, oh my God. I yeah. mean, like you're literally yeah. recording on old equipment or Lenny Craig, like you're recording on analog equipment. Yeah. Um, let me just ask you to just really quickly, um, the Millie Jackson article. It was oh, really yeah. great. She's so, she's somebody who sort of straddles that line, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I yeah. So I wrote this article for the most recent issue of the Oxford American Southern Music uh, issue they do every year, um, which is always great. I was so thrilled to be included in it. And the issue this year, there's always a theme. And this year, the theme was country and country roots. And so I wanted to write about her country album, Just a Little Bit Country. Um, which she made in 1981 or two. I can't remember the exact year, but um, I've always loved this record because it's like Millie Jackson as this, you know, really amazing kind of somewhat singular figure in R&B and soul in the seventies. And I mean, nobody's singular, but you know, on the one hand she's doing these like, (laughs) like really intimate kind of (laughs) dirty, like, you know, ballads and the long extended raps she would do. Um, But on the other hand, she also like so many um, R&B and soul singers of her generation, really loved country music and wanted to do country right. music too. So she actually has a huge hit. There's Millie. <laughs> yeah. Courtney's holding up a photo of the one yeah. of the records. But uh yeah, so the um you know, so she always wanted to do country and she had a hit with a cover of a country song, if you're not back in Love by Monday, a Merle Haggard song. But she makes this country record and I've just always loved it because it's like her tapping into the country music that she loved and her countryness, her country identity that she felt. And then, but also like she doesn't just do retreads, you know, she's got like, she's kind of discifying and urban cowboying up a couple older songs. She's adding her own spin to things. She's writing her own songs that she wrote, throws in the mix. Well, Al Green always had a country track on every album. Abso- absolutely. I mean, you can, it's hard to find a country or an R&B or soul artist who didn't at least, at least have one prominent country cover and often had some on every album or even entire albums of country. It's this whole tradition. So I just wanted to write about it because I feel like she's someone who is an example of how black artists have constantly been responding to what's going on in country music, where country music is going while also sort of laying a planning a foot in saying like, we've always been here. We've always been country. Black folks are country too, but also saying like black folks are being, are, are, are continued to be kind of dynamic contributors to this, even if we don't have the opportunities in country. Cause like, you know, Millie Jackson told a story about how she was supposed to be on the Opry and then that got canceled at the last minute. That's, right. you know, like there's a lot of those kinds of things. And she always felt, I think very um, disappointed at least from what you can, from what I can tell. I talked to her years ago and also in other interviews she gave, just, she was disappointed that she didn't get to be kind of a country artist cause she loved country. So, and in her very Millie Jackson way, she, ends this record with a cover of Chris Christopherson's If You Don't Like Hank Williams, which is kind of Christopherson basically doing a country anthem of like all these country artists and stuff. 
And like Christofferson always is, it's kind of funny. It's kind of wry. It's very smart. But what Millie Jackson does is takes that that song, but puts all these R&B artists in it. So it's all these, these R&B signifiers with a country sound. It sounds just like the, the Christofferson cut. But then instead of if you don't like Hank Williams, it's if you don't like Millie Jackson. And as Christofferson nice. said about Hank Williams, and as Ms. Jackson says about herself, if you don't like Millie Jackson, you can kiss my ass. Which is like... <laughs> So Millie Jackson in such a wonderful way. So I wanted to talk about that too, because it's like, you know, black artists have always been country and they keep talking to us about how country they are. It's on us to listen and to take them to seriously. Hear it. Yeah. I will well, black you, people are from those same parts. You exactly, know what I mean? Exactly. I grew exactly. up on, my mother was born in Harrison Creek, North Carolina, yep. which is outside of Wilmington, where mm-hmm. my family's still based. And I grew up, New York used to have dedicated country music radio stations. I yep. don't think we have one anymore. And that's all we listened to. When I was in, my mom had her car. My dad had a car. And my mom, that's all we listened to was country right. music. I grew up on country. And it's huge in Jamaica. Country mm-hmm. music has always huge. been really big in the islands. The, I was going to tell you that the Millie Jacks, I told Courtney this oh, story. Yeah. I, I was like six months pregnant, seven months pregnant. I was pregnant. Um, and the Brooklyn Academy Music used to rent their space out for shows. And Millie Jackson was performing. And I, a friend of mine gave me a ticket. And I and I had really good seats because my friend worked there. I was afraid to walk down the aisle to my seat because I thought Millie Jackson would say, would mock me from the state like she go look at that fat white girl and i was just terrified that she i was like afraid of her so i stayed at the back at the soundboard the whole time but she was great is she still recording i don't think she's recorded much recently but she's she performs she, she does performs. perform yeah. with her daughter i believe her daughter, her daughter right? was one of Raphael sadiq's backup singers mm-hmm. for a long time and worked with like um out wasn't she part of like the whole outcast crew her daughter with i think that's Joy right and all those people mm-hmm. yeah that's right yeah and i and you know she she's another example of that kind of wonderful generation of black artists who are you know like have will always have success and be celebrated among black audiences, even as the mainstream white audience that they may have had for a minute have kind of left them behind. Right. I mean, there's this real sort of erasure in a lot of white, white driven canons, right. Of black artists who are treated as like these forgotten curios when someone like Millie Jackson has been out and making music um, someone like, uh, you know, and producing like her-, her albums. I think that produ- we need yes. to talk because, yep. you know, a lot of times when we talk about women who have yep. taken control of their careers, you know, there are a lot of people mention people don't mention the fact that Millie Jackson was producing her records. She's a real auteur. She's one of those seventies mm-hmm. artists. She should be and, and beyond. Right. But that seventies mm-hmm. singer songwriter moment She's a part of that moment that is so often written as a white thing. And yes, right. and actually that production thing, because those, first of all, those records are amazingly produ- well produced. They sound amazing. Mm-hmm. But also the country record is made by her in, in 81 because she had renegotiated her contract and get, got more creative control. And the first thing she did. <laughs> was make a country record, right? Which I don't make think the record she always wanted to make. Right? Exactly. That's the one she always wanted to make. Exactly. And it's so brilliantly. I mean, I love it. I think it's a very underrated record by a lot of people, um, at least by critics and stuff. But I 
And I mean, it's funny because a lot of people didn't even write about it at the time that I've been able to find or they wrote about it as a kind of curiosity. But it's like, mm-hmm. I think that record is great. And I think that record is, I wouldn't put it above like Feeling Bitchy or a couple of the other real, like the caught up records right. or things like that that she did. I think it's really great. And I think part of what makes it so great is it's like, it is her in full control of her brilliance making the record she's making and making it sound like not just country music from when she was growing up or when she was young, but from country music right then right she's saying like this is what the country music sounds like right now and i'm gonna do that as well as anybody too and what but do you I, think about this one royal rapping her with Isaac oh, Hayes? i love it yeah i mean what a what a i mean first of all like you know what a perfect combination i think that i great. mean yeah right <laughs> yeah what do you think about it i you know to me it just shows how she did, I mean, she literally touched so many elements of music. You know what I mean? I I don't even want to just say, but just music. She did everything. She flirted with hip hop. She flirted with disco, R&B. She was funk. She was country. She was soul. Like, I don't put Millie Jackson in a box. To me, she's just, she's a musician who does a lot of different things. Yeah. And I think that each one of these records are interesting, but it, it also feels generational, right? I'm in my 50s, so we're talking about a time where, you know, I'm hearing things in my Paris played in the house. And I find it interesting that it's usually people's mothers, a lot of moms who played Millie Jackson, because yeah. she doesn't seem to carry over into today's conversation when we talk about soul singers and women who are sampled, out there doing they, it. Is she being yeah. sampled? No, I don't, I don't I mean, think she's really, would, yeah, know, I don't think she's really up. sampled a lot. So it, it's just interesting how I love that you put a spotlight on her because I don't feel like generationally a lot of people know about her, these young and, people. In the and what I, well, thank you. And I, I'm, I'm, and I agree with you. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things I talk about this in the piece that's so like unfortunate or ironic or odd about that too, is that like looking, as you said, like looking around right now, it's like, you can see all of these artists, especially women in hip hop, in R and B, in pop music, in rock music, in country music who reflect what Millie Jack, right? Like there are so many people right now who sound like, or kind of have the vibe of Millie Jackson and she sort of presages this wonderful um, sort of liberate. I mean, not, she's not the only one, right. But like the way she's talking about sex and sexuality, the way she's. Yeah. People have considered her raunchy back then right now, which now it's like now she was considered really like her, her, her brand uh, was very raunchy and she was like, yep, come, here's what it is. Come see it. And people loved it. And, and now that may have been yeah. done her. That may have done her in in some. You ways. think because of the time period, yeah. because yeah, time people period. people could say, "Oh, this is raunchy," this but is it's raunchy, like it's like yeah. it's like adult. It was like adult right. music, right. adult the adult section. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And so it's hard to get kid appeal because let's face it, it's 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 younger people who drive sales. You know what I mean? Right. In terms of like, so she's not gonna. I was gonna say, I think the only artist I can think of contemporary who a black artist who you feel the country who celebrates the country in him would be Anthony Hamilton. I mean, oh, yeah. Anthony right. Hamilton was straight up country, you know, yep. like, and, and had no bones about it, you know, and had a limited kind of, um, 
I mean, he could do a country record with his eyes closed. I'm sure he could. He and listen, we're I'm... seeing more black artists, right, moving over to the countryside and doing straight up country. We've seen yeah. Darius Rucker yep. do it successfully. You know, Mickey Guyton is 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 fighting her way in there. We have is Jimmy Allen. So we're mm-hmm. starting to see more. Yeah, but... the Darius Rucker thing. I don't know. I think like Darius yeah. Rucker crossover because he was palatable. Well, I don't know. I he think he's really, a great voice. I, I think, but I think voice. he's talented, and he's having really hits. And he's no, ha- no, no. He has a well, great voice. But I also but- think maybe you know Hootie and the Blowfish kind of fits along with that audience, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. not a very hard left. No, to, to it's move not. to country. It, it, it's not. But, a hard, I, but it's but hard yeah. to have success there. So yes, I have that's to. True. And as a black artist, and he has been able to do it and have hits there. I have to give him that credit because even though it's close, you know, that's a very resistant market. No, Women are still having true. trouble being played on country oh, radio. Yeah. Country no, radio is really, still all yeah. men. And it's no, really, I, I definitely give it to him, but I'm yeah. just saying it's not like it's not like he kind of was like uh, his audience was already that audience. Yes, but it's different when then you come to that audience and say, "Now I'm of you." You right, know yeah. what I mean? That right. doesn't mean that everybody's going to be like, "Oh, open arms, come on," you know? Yeah, no. And then, yeah, and, just... and then and there's the problem that he faced that you know and and like i just remember i used to joke about it it was like it was like there was some kind of law that every time there was an article about darius rucker it had to open with some reference to charlie pride it was like there was a policy right. someone, someone I just, had i just created right. a paper it's, it's, i swear to god about somebody who wrote about and i was like all right you're how many times are you going to mention charlie yeah, pride you have to exactly stop and charlie pride is a legendary icon but you know that's the popular name so people are just gonna yeah, they're not gonna do right. any research and go a little deeper yeah, they're just like charlie like, like charlie pride charlie, charlie pride. pride and the thing and one of the things that charlie pride one of the things that charlie pride dealt with that Darius Rucker certainly dealt with was, you know, the thing of like the, 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 and I'm not saying that they, I'm not saying this in a way to, to denigrate either of their accomplishments. Right. But like what happens then when you become the one, right. The token almost. Right. And so Rucker to Rucker to me is so interesting because like I I'm waiting and I don't know if it'll ever happen. And I mean, I wish him the best in whatever he wants to do. Um, But I'm waiting for him to talk about that. Because he talked about it a little bit when everything was happening around Lil Nas X and then um, Morgan Wallen, whose name I, I hate to even invoke at this point. But with all that that was going on, he talked about it a little bit. I just I feel like there's a really interesting thing that happens with him. But then because of people like Jimmy Allen and Kane Brown and other folks, and even as you know, as Courtney points out, right, like the continuing problem that black women have getting on country radio, which is significant and it's connected to the larger sexism of country radio but um like at least now darius rucker isn't the only one we can think of right, right? like like there That's is a true. certain comfort I hope for him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and like he and may that- not be that guy i don't think he's he doesn't strike me as the guy that's going to ruffle any feathers. Yeah, and he may not. And yeah. look, I'm not going to Yeah, but him. here's the thing. But it's, but it's not about ruffling feathers. Sometimes just your presence ruffles the feathers. But That's I'm saying, thing. but there are just some guys we, exp- you know, it's like expecting all women to be feminists. It's like, expect, right. you know, he just might not. I'm sure he's no, a I just lovely wanna, person. I, I think he should don't... just be an artist and make records. Like, the I thing agree. is, yeah. being and black sometimes he... showing up is is the thing that ju- just That's our right. presence is enough to ruffle the feathers. And to, he and... doesn't do wet with Morgan Wallen, you know? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And, and to and to like for him to do what he wants to do 
as an artist is is a political statement in country music. It still is to oh, and sure. to continue to be successful, right? Like there are a lot of black folks and brown folks, right, and folks who don't kind of and get queer folks in the sort of emergent Americana space, even though that's a really funky scenario too. And I know we're almost out of time, but I got you know there mm-hmm. that I don't want to make make it sound like that's a utopia either because it's not. Mm-hmm. But like to be a black artist in mainstream country music who continues to have hits and is sort of welcomed into that very exclusive community, as you were saying, like that is itself. And the, to be what I, I hope that he is who he wants to be. That's my, right. that's my yeah. take. And I mean, I sincerely want that for him because before him, there was Charlie pride and a bunch of folks <laughs> who, who were tried to be marketed as the next Charlie pride or the only, or the other one and that kind of stuff. The great Obi McClinton wrote a song about that, like being the other one. Um, but like that—that that is such a hard thing still in country. And I think, whereas white people in country, like country is, especially if you're men, like c- country guys could do white white guys in country. Their whole thing is like, well, we're white country guys. We do whatever we want, right? Like right. That's they can put re- out an EDM record if exactly. They that's to. that rebel. That's that <laughs> rebel thing. And I use that word yeah. very consciously, right? Like that. Yeah. So I, not that I want, you know, I, I want because they've be, not gotten upset with Chris Stapleton, who's amazing for cross for making exactly. songs of pop people doing. Exactly. doing they love him. They love mm-hmm. him. But you notice with the women, when yep. they've stepped out, this is too pop. Why, why are you doing This yeah, is a yeah, country. Wait, wait, wait. Let me think about why that might be. That women <laughs> get treated. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. It'll come to me. It'll come to me. And I don't know. M- we might have to do another show. And, about I that. mean, and I'm not really sure because I've never checked the numbers. You know, Mickey Guyton has gotten more national exposure, but has she actually had a hit at country radio? Has she had a hit? No. So there's an amazing scholar named Jada Watson who has done all this. Like she's like a date. They call her data Jada. Cause she's done mm-hmm. all these incredible statistical analyses, but she's also like a really great, like kind of like listener and, and historian too. But she's done all this amazing work about the larger problem of women being basically excluded from country radio, which was not the case historically. It just sort of recently happened. And the specific, mm-hmm. specific, like, exponentially more uh, serious problem for black women and brown women. Right. And, and like, mm. so no, I don't believe she had Mickey Guyton has and like J- Jada Watson's work, J A D A W A T S O N. Check her out folks. Mm-hmm. Okay. She has really done some amazing stuff and to, and to confirm exactly what you suspected. Uh, that yeah. is absolutely the case. Charles, we could talk to you all day and you're yeah. an hour behind us. So it would be yeah. less of a day, but we're in fear of, the internet. <laughs> I understand. I understand. I, before I got a new computer, we would be taping and suddenly, I, and Courtney go, you got to get a new computer, girl. I think it's, it's like, freezing. It's you like, gotta, we'll do a GoFundMe for you. Get and it. I, I keep it. paying for Spectrum who every day decides during the work day, oh, it's time for it to just go down yeah, 14 yeah. times nobody every day. Needs, like, nobody needs oh, the internet. It's thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you for sending me a bill for this. I really right. appreciate I it. Really, how nice. <laughs> Charles, it was wonderful having you. You class up the joint. Oh please! We are pre- you class up the joint. <laughs> no, I don't know about it. Well, I'm, oh, I'm so. It was so happy. I'm so happy to be here. This was great, and I, you know, 
I could talk to y'all all day too. So I really. I'm thank coming you to much. your barn festival that you. I'm going to do. Oh, it. you got to come. Yes, the barn dance. Yeah. He has a barn dance every year, Courtney. I'm oh my god! In a, real barn? In, a in a real barn. In a real barn. But oh, it's like wow. it's, a, it's like a, it's it's kind of a it's like you know there's electricity in it and it's got, no I've know, been in like a barn I know I know yeah <laughs> it's not like I, I say that because club. it's not a club yeah. called the barn I've, yeah, I've been I, but it's also, I've been in you know, one like of those got, too <laughs> there's good like there's it's it's this thing is thrown by a so I'm originally from Wisconsin and mm. one of my friends there owns the, he took over his family farm and made it into this really amazing thing and uh, so he you know there's great food there's great drinks mm. there's it's a it's a wonderful thing and it's a scene every summer. We have a really good nice. time and we'll have you know. to keep in touch because my best friend knows how to drive. I don't. <laughs> oh, hey. You all are both she, hey, you should come. And she's from the Midwest, and I'm very as I told you, I am insanely I have been to the Balkans more than I've been to the Midwest. <laughs> all right. Well, we gotta fix that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Charles, thank you so much. And I'm so glad that we're friend friends now and not just me too. Facebook friends. I know. And all right, so let me hype you some more. Why Bushwick Bill Matters is on University of Texas Press. He has an article right now about Millie Jackson and is it in the Oxford Oxford America magazine? Yes, That's Oxford right. America. Oxford right. American. Yep. Oxford American and is working on a book about pro wrestling, which will be dope because what Charles does is makes things that you might not know you're interested in and it makes you interested in it. And he's super smart, but doesn't use too many big words. Cause me and Courtney, our little heads hurt when there's too many big words. <laughs> we, we, we drop plants and, and hurt ourselves. And we're the, but Charles, thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you both so much. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.